Lord, we're thankful that we can uh, rest and remember the truths of your word. Lord, that in the midst of a busy week and a busy season that we can slow down and allow our hearts to be reattuned to your word. And Lord, just open up our ears that we might hear from you this morning. Amen. Well, it's great to be described as a lovely, lovely man. That's always a good, good way to start things off. As John said, my name is Josh, and uh, we want to be looking at Genesis chapter 12. So if you want to uh, turn to your Bibles, you can uh, find your way to Genesis chapter 12. Um, but during my final year of university, I had the opportunity to study abroad in Denmark. And uh, the University of Copenhagen, they had a really good program for my area of study. So I got there, and the first couple months were, were really good. Great, great program. But after that, I noticed that I had a problem. And it was in my bank account. Because while I thought that I had budgeted appropriately for this full year of study in Denmark, I, I grossly underestimated the cost of everything in Denmark. So I began to scramble. I had no work visa, so I couldn't get a job. So I just began to, to pray, and I just applied for scholarships like crazy. Any scholarship I'm applying for, I'm like, boom, boom, boom. Let's send it out, send it out. And I just, I just prayed. But every day, my anxiety would build because I would look at my bank account going down. And I had, I had back at that time, I only had one credit card. I mean, not that you should really have any. That's not really an endorsement. But I had one, and it only had a limit of $500, which wouldn't go very far in Denmark at all. So I just was growing in anxiety, like, would I have to cut my years short? Would I have to go back? What was going to happen? I, I just didn't know. Then all of a sudden, one day, I get a letter in the mail, and it's one of those very official-looking pieces of mail, you know, in one of those priority envelopes, and, and I'm like, okay, great, either this is good news or I'm being sued by someone, I don't know. So I open it up, and it was a handwritten letter from a woman named Goodrun Warwick, and I'm like, Goodrun Warwick? I had applied for so many scholarships, I didn't even remember this one. So I open it up, and it's not a typed letter, it's a handwritten letter. And she said, hey, I've heard about you, an American studying in Denmark, and my family foundation would like to help underwrite some of your studies. And she said, my lawyer in Copenhagen will be in touch. And I was like, man, I was excited. I was like, finally, there is hope on the horizon. I began to feel this relief. I'm like, okay, I won't have to go back early. But as a few days went by, I was like, okay, the letter didn't really talk about how much it was. The letter didn't talk about the time frame. It didn't talk about any requirements. It didn't say even the lawyer's name or any phone number. All I had was this address. In, actually, it was back in the United States. And I was like, so this, this anxiety that had left came back with a vengeance. It was there, like, okay, what's going to happen? Maybe, maybe this isn't really real. My enthusiasm began to dwindle. And I started to wonder if I had gotten my hopes up for nothing. And that's the funny thing about hope, is that it can be found anywhere. But is it going to be reliable? Is that hope going to be able to stand up? Because you see, our world is filled with hope. I mean, it's just everywhere. And the reason why is because hope's in such high demand. Both, if you just open up a newspaper and look at the global headlines, we've got war. We've got the, all the economic problems. We've got ethnic strife. And if we zero in on our own personal headlines, we might be, you might say, I've got anxiety. 
I've got broken relationships. I've got family drama. I've got financial stress. And so I don't have to convince you this morning that things are bad. And we're all looking for some way to get relief, to get some sort of of traction of hope, maybe just a distraction to get through the day. And we see advertisements for hope all the time on TV, on the internet. You know, drink this, eat this, and you'll be healthy. You know, the hope of good health. Invest like this, and you'll be secure financially. You know, we're looking for a financial hope. Or maybe it's a political message saying, hey, man, if we just get into office, we are going to deliver the hope that you need. And technology, technology is always offering, hey, if you just log in, all your problems will go away. Just, just got to sign up, log in. So some hope, you know, we know that not all hope is created equal. Some hope is just dressed up optimism or wishful thinking. But what makes biblical hope transformative is our confidence in the one making the promise. And this brings us to the beauty of the Advent season. This is why we're celebrating. The hope that we find in Christ is not flimsy. It's a solid, never-changing, never-giving-up hope that touches every part of our life. But this season, as, as John just said, Advent, it means arrival. It means anticipating. It, it means waiting. And no one likes waiting. But the good news is that we can trust our Heavenly Father as he is, he's the one writing our story. But it doesn't mean that the journey is always easy. So we want to spend this morning in Scripture being reminded of the promise that anchors our hope. We want to find wisdom and encouragement in the stories of people who have persevered before us. So as we're, we're going to do an overview of Genesis 12 through 22. And before you get overwhelmed because you're like, 10 chapters? That, that, I don't think so. We've got, we've got plans today. Now, we're just going to do kind of a, an overview, a flyover, if you will. Um, so we want to look at Scripture at the overview of, of Abraham's story. And this is where hope makes a surprise entrance. But before we read uh, Genesis 12, we, we just need a little context first, okay? Real, real quick, a little Bible 101. Genesis, Genesis 1 and 2 Beautiful story of creation. God just beautifully creates what we live on right now. But Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they rebel against God's perfect design. And sin enters the world and chaos ensues. Every part of creation is broken. But in the midst of our sinful mess, in the midst of our pain, we get a glimpse of God's rescue plan. And the rescue plan begins with a promise an incredible promise to a guy named Abram, or his name will later change to Abraham. So let's go ahead and read Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay, this is a huge promise. And it's totally unmerited. You don't see anything about Abram that says he's special or that he's qualified. And if we read into this, this promise, it says that all, all families on the earth will be blessed. So this promise somehow connects with us as well. But this promise also involves 
a huge step of faith. I mean, it says, Abram, leave your homeland and go, you know, leave your comfortable life and go to a place that I will show you. This promise is a little bit light on the details. A land I'll show you? Well, where's that on the map? I'm not, I'm not finding that spot. But Abraham, he obeys. He says, okay, I'll go. And at the age of 75, he heads out on an 800-mile journey. He leaves all that he knows behind to obey God. So, all right, things are looking pretty good. But if you read carefully in Genesis chapter 12, we see a reality that is disconnected from the promise. The promise says that Abram is going to be the father of this great nation. But as you read through their sort of their departure details, it's like Abraham's gathering his stuff. He gets his wife. They're all getting ready to go. One thing's missing. He and Sarah, they don't have any children yet. So there's a tension here between the promise of a great nation and the reality of the barrenness of Abraham and Sarah. And this is really the plot line for this entire story. And later on in chapter 12, we see the first hurdle that Abram would, would, uh, would deal with in this faith journey. So after these 800 miles, he gets to the land, and there is no immediate fulfillment of the promise. He gets there, and it's like, okay, I'm here. And in fact, not only is the fulfillment not immediate, he's actually greeted with famine. It's like, hello, welcome to the promised land. No food. It's like, okay, not probably what Abraham was hoping for. So, but we don't see Abram asking God for help, but rather he leans on his own wisdom, his own kind of perspective, and he heads to Egypt. Now, this would have been a typical place for people to go in the ancient Near East during times of famine, because everyone knew with the Nile River, there was always food in Egypt. So he heads there, but he encounters another problem. He's like, okay, um, yeah, the scripture actually says this. He says, my, my wife is really beautiful. And if people here know that this is my wife, I'm afraid that I will be killed so that they can take her. And he's got this dilemma. He's like, what, what, what am I going to do? And so he's like, I could tell them she's my sister because that's technically kind of right. She's a half-sister from this, that, and the other. But it's kind of like an eight-year-old looking for a technicality when confronted, did you hit your sister? And it's like, no, I didn't hit her. It was more of a smack. It's like, Okay, yeah, okay, maybe, but she is your wife. So here we have a tension. The promise is that through Abraham's heir, a great nation will emerge, and all the families on the earth will be blessed. That's our promise. But here we have reality. Abraham and Sarah have no kids. They are economic refugees, and Abram's worried that he could die if he's honest about his wife. So hope, it totally takes a backseat. Abraham, out of fear and a desire to control, he says, I I'm going to solve this one on my own. I've got this. But the plan totally backfires because Pharaoh, he just takes her. He doesn't give Abram a chance to negotiate or say, oh, she's my sister, and maybe receive some potential suitors. Pharaoh just takes Sarah to be his wife, and all of a sudden the promise is at risk. We're not sure what's going to happen. But God intervenes. He inflicts plagues upon Pharaoh's household. It's a whole mess in Pharaoh's situation. And he eventually you know, confronts Abram and says, she's not your sister, she's your wife. He says, get out of here, get, get out of here, go. You're causing me problems. So they leave, they go back to the land, 
and the promise is intact. So let's move on to chapter 15. We find the next challenge. This chapter begins with Abraham experiencing comfort from God. God is saying to Abram, fear not, I am with you. But Abram, he is struggling. He's crying out to God, we don't have a child. Right now, the only heir to our household is this household servant. I mean, Abram is being really honest with God right now. He's laying out his view of reality. And at first, his cry is in the form of a question. But immediately following that, in despair, he seems to almost let go of the promise, accepting the reality that they won't have children and that Eliezer, his servant, would be his heir. Again, we have a tension between the promise and reality. The promise being, through his heir, a great nation would emerge and all the families on the earth would be blessed. But the reality is, Abram's like, I don't have any children. We're getting older. Maybe I misunderstood the promise. Maybe the heir could be someone from my household, one of my servants. However, God responds with kindness and with assurance of the promise. In fact, he even says, Abram, why don't you come outside with me? It's a clear night. They go outside, and he says, look up at the stars. And Abraham looks up there, and God's like, Abram, your descendants will be greater than all of these stars. And God further communicates his commitment through a covenant ceremony. Now, again, this scene, if we read it in detail, it's a little bit odd to our modern ears. Um, this is not really how we make covenants. I don't know if anyone's ever bought a house. Nowadays, we just sign a 1,000 documents and hand it in, and that's a, that's, that's a covenant. But back then, they did things differently. They bring all these animals in, and they're all cut in half. And the idea is this is that both, usually both parties would walk through the animals, these dead animals. They would both walk through, and the idea was this, is that if you broke the promise, it's like you were saying, I, I will become like one of these dead animals, because it was serious. So they cut these animals up, and then all of a sudden, God puts Abram to sleep, and God alone walks through the middle of the animals. The covenant is confirmed but it's only confirmed by God. It's an unconditional, unilateral covenant. It's an ironclad promise because God does not change and God does not lie. So at this point in the story, we're like, okay, great. We're locked in. Abram knows God is serious. You know, the hope is secure. But let's cruise over to chapter 16. Let's see what happens here. So, Again, we read chapter 16. Abram and Sarah still don't have any children. And you can just kind of feel the heaviness. Because now, while again, it's really easy to read these chapters, probably like in five minutes, it's now been 10 years. They've been in the land 10 years waiting for this promise. And out of desperation or determination or maybe a little bit of both, Sarah suggests to Abram, why don't you take my servant Hagar to be your wife and try to have a child with her. And despite the, promise of, the promises of God, Abram, he listens. He listens to Sarah and he agrees to this plan. Now, it's, it's, in this situation, it's really easy to be critical of this sinful decision. But this polygamous solution was actually pretty common in the ancient Near East. 
This is usually how people would solve issues of barrenness. It was like, hey, take another wife. In fact, people all around Abram and Sarah, they were probably suggesting this to them over the years. Hey, you guys clearly can't have children. Why don't you do this? Because, again, they've been struggling with this for 10 years. And we can see both good and bad in Sarah's decision. She so wanted God's promises to Abram to be fulfilled that she was willing to sacrifice her own special intimacy with her husband. But at the same time, we can see anger and blame in her words in verse 2. It says, this is her, her words, the Lord has prevented me from having children, so take my servant. Because Sarah, she's desperate to see some progress in this promise. But Abraham's conduct, it's, it's even more offensive. This man who so boldly followed God and obeyed his every word, he just goes along with Sarah's plan. No, no pushback, no seeking of the Lord. So now again, let's, let's look at the tension between reality and the promise. The promise is that through Abram's heir, a great nation will emerge and all of the families on earth will be blessed. But what's the reality? There's been no progress on the promise. We're getting older. We're getting impatient. And I guess we'll just have to find another way to make things happen. Domestic chaos is the result of this action. God allows the natural consequences of sin to play out because Abram does father a child with Hagar. Sarah now views Hagar with contempt. Abraham, he fails to repent for his failure of leadership, and Sarah actually causes Hagar to flee. I mean, hope is looking really dim at this point. Let's move on to chapter 17 and 18. They have now been in the land for 23 years. There's still no children. But at this point, God actually restates the promise to Abram. He says, I'm going to multiply your household. And in sharing this promise, it actually goes one step further. God changes Abram's name from Abram to Abraham with this new, this new name, meaning the father of many nations. And Sarah also gets a new name. It's more of a new spelling. Um, but this is significant. It says that her new name means that kings shall come from her offspring. But at this point, it seems like we might have hit Abraham's breaking point. Not only do they not have an heir, no children yet, but now their names are so far from reality. I mean, have you ever been in a situation so painful where you either laughed or cried? It seems that Abraham is in this place. He's so weary from holding on to hope. In chapter 17, verse 17, it says that he falls on his face and laughs, almost laughing in exhaustion. His mind is struggling to comprehend the possibility of the promise being fulfilled. He's just thinking, we're so old. This just isn't possible. And in fact, Abraham even negotiates with God. In verse 18, he says, God, remember, I fathered a child with Hagar. We've got Ishmael. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe we could use Ishmael as the heir. And God's like, nope, he's going to be with your wife. And we even see Sarah in chapter 18. She laughs at the prospect of holding on to hope. She's ready, to th- she's ready to throw in the towel. She's ready to give up. 
again, we just want to feel the tension. I know I'm kind of repeating this, but it's just it's helpful for us to feel it. The promise is that through Abraham's heir, a great nation will emerge, and all the families on the people will be blessed. But the reality right now in this story is, okay, this just feels out of reach. We're beyond the possibility of this happening, and exhaustion and cynicism are creeping in. But how does God respond? He says, no, the promise remains intact. In fact, in one year, you will have a child with your wife, and you will name him Isaac. And if all of you Bible scholars, if you know what the name Isaac means, it means laughter. As if almost to say, I'm going to turn your laughter around. Right now, you're laughing at exhaustion and weariness, but in one year, you will have joy. Okay, so you kind of feel like, oh, man, we're getting close. Only one more year. I can hold out. Well, let's go to chapter 20. It's, it's just almost crazy. We get a moment of deja vu. Abraham and Sarah, they're traveling outside of the land once again, and they encounter a very powerful king, King uh, Abimelech. And uh, Abraham, again, is fearful. He says, oh, man, my wife, she's, she's, she's beautiful, and if people know that we're married, they might kill me to take her. So again, trusting his own methods, I mean, I guess he thought it worked so well the first time. Let's give it another, let's, let's try it again. You know, Abraham, I, I don't know about his GPA here, but he says, let's try it again. I'm going to do the same ploy, and again, it does not work. The king takes Sarah, and the, pr the promise is now in jeopardy. Again, the, the tension here, the promise that through Abraham's heir, a great nation will emerge, and all the families on the earth will be blessed. But the reality is, once again, Abraham's fearful. He's trusting his own deceptive and sinful methods. But again, God intervenes. He steps in, and he honors his covenant promise. He goes to the king in a dream and said, if you touch Sarah, it's over. You're dead. Your whole household, the, all of it. So again, he, he, he lets Sarah go. They are, the, the, the promise is intact, and they go back to the land. So finally, you can just sort of feel the weariness. We get to chapter 21, and Sarah is pregnant, and she gives birth to Isaac. And I'm just hoping they have one of the most epic baby showers of all time. I mean, I'm talking like really just, I don't know, the games, I don't know, the, the diapers. It's got to be good. So just when you think like, okay, man, I, I'm exhausted. Let's just take a breath here. Maybe we can calm down. The promise is, is we're seeing some progress. Nothing really prepares you for chapter 22. God tells Abram, Abraham to take his son and go to this, this, this land, this mountain, Mount Moriah. And he says, I want you to offer your son as a burnt offering on this mountain. His, his only son, his beloved son. And you're just, you're just almost saying, well, wait, what about the promise? This doesn't make any sense. The promise and reality couldn't be any further apart. The promise, again, if you haven't been paying attention, through my heir, a great nation will emerge, and all the families on the earth will be blessed. But now we have reality as God is asking Abraham, to take and sacrifice his only heir. But Abraham obeys. He puts it all on the line. 
trusting God. So they start making their way towards this mountain. And they're going up this hill. And Isaac, who's, who's not, a, he's not a little boy, he's, he inquires with his father. He said, Father, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham responds, God will provide the lamb. And the beauty of the story is that God does intervene. Right before Abraham sacrifices his son, he intervenes and stops him. And Abraham sees a ram in a nearby thicket. And so they take the ram and they offer it as the burnt offering instead of Isaac. Let's read Genesis chapter 22, verse 14 together. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. In that verse, the phrase, the Lord will provide, it just, just jumps out. All of this long journey that Abraham's gone through, he's held on and the Lord will provide. So let's just take a breath. We've, we've just cruised through a lot of text, 25 years. And although we have very different lives from Abraham, you know, different, different culture, a different time, a different place, we experience a lot of the same challenges and frustrations and the heartache of waiting. You might be waiting for a breakthrough in your health. You might have a relational conflict in your family or with a friend and you're, you're waiting for resolution. You might be waiting for meaningful friendships. You might be waiting for clarity and direction for your life. Maybe you have deep wounds from the past and you're waiting for them to heal. Maybe you're waiting for a spouse. Let's consider what we can learn from Abraham and his story. The first one is this, is that it's okay for our hearts to cry out in the midst of waiting. As we read through this story, God is never angry when Abraham cries out about the tension between the promise and reality. God doesn't ask Abraham to bottle up his emotion and endure the faith journey as a stoic. He never says, Abraham, just suck it up, put on a happy face, keep moving, you know, in fact, several times when Abraham does cry out, God responds by reassuring him with the truth of the promise. He takes Abraham outside as if to get some fresh air. And he reminds him of the covenant and he comforts him. And we see this truth played out in the Psalms again and again. On so many occasions, the psalmist is crying out and waiting for justice, waiting for vindication openly expressing that they feel like they've been forgotten. There are so many psalms where the psalmist is like, I feel like my prayers are not being heard. And we could go through these one by one. And we, we don't see rebukes saying, hey, don't talk like that. Instead, we see God saying, look, I can handle your big and strong emotions. In fact, he wants to come in and work in our lives. These are the very real moments where God is able to come in and touch and shape our hearts. So trusting God does not equate to being an optimist, and hope does not always have to wear a smile. The second lesson that we can learn is this. We can be confident that God is doing something. So if I'm honest, I typically equate waiting with pressing pause on the TV. You know, waiting means nothing is happening. I don't know if anyone else 
would equate with that. But as we read the story, we see that a lot is happening below the surface. God is teaching, shaping, transforming Abraham and Sarah's life. Because again, remember, God pulled Abraham out of the Ur, and he's inviting him into a relationship with the holy. And ultimately, the nation of Israel would grow, and ultimately the redeemer of the world would come from this nation. It's like planting a seed. You know, you put that seed in the ground, you water it, you're doing all the normal, you know, agricultural stuff. But after a couple of weeks, maybe even a month, you're like, what's going on? I don't see any progress. Nothing's happening. Maybe I killed it. Maybe, maybe I did something wrong. But then all of a sudden, you see a sprout emerge. And during that time, something big was happening below the surface. And this is how things are with our, with our lives. Even when we are waiting, even when things in parts of our life feel like they are on pause, we can trust that God is working. John Piper has a, a famous quote that God is always doing 10,000 things in your life, but you might only be aware of three of them. Hope is not always flashy, but we can be confident that God is working. The third principle we can see is that we need to stop trying to make it happen. The only time when Abraham does get into trouble is when he tries to advance the promise with his own strength and abilities. You know, when confronted with powerful kings, he says, no worries, God, I got this, I got this. When they still had no children 10 years in, he said, okay, I'll take a second wife. These actions, they cause trouble because hope and control, they have a hard time living under the same roof. Hope is future faith that God will provide. And that can be hard to grasp in a get-it-done American-style culture because hope ultimately requires patience. But we would rather take control. Again, there's nothing wrong with being prepared for when God would open up a door. Waiting does not mean being sedentary. But we can rest and know that God will take care of the things that he has promised. The last one, the last principle we can see is that Abraham keeps going. He stays in the story. The most powerful thing that we can take away from the story is that Abraham stays in it. He doesn't exit. He doesn't look for like, hey, this, this program, this promise deal, I, I want out. I want nothing to do with it. He trusts God all the way through to the end, although he doesn't always obey perfectly. Let's read in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 15. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having waited, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Abraham didn't have any special abilities. He struggled. He cried out. He made mistakes. He left the promised land, then returned. But he didn't leave the story. And sometimes it's hard to hold on to hope. It's easier to, to, to look for an exit. But why? We, we got to ask, why was Abraham able to hold on? And this is where we, where we come back to the starting passage that John read. In hope, this is Romans 4, 18 through 21. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. 
as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no unbelief made him, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do all that he had promised or what he had promised. So in spite of all the years, he held under the promise, believing that God could provide. So we want to remember, though, that this story, this promise is not only just for Abraham, but it's for us right here in this room. Genesis 12 said the promise is going to bless all the families on the earth. So we can wait with hope because what God has done, who he is, his character, and what he has already done for us. Because the final moment in the story of Abraham and Isaac, it provides us with a beautiful signpost hinting at how this promise would be fulfilled. So let's take just a closer look at, this, at the details of this final part of the story. We have Abraham, the loving father, and we have Isaac, the only beloved son, the hope of the promise, the source of all blessing. And he is obeying his father, trudging up the hill with the wood for the sacrifice strapped to his back, and he is walking towards his death. And they are walking up a mountain near Jerusalem, Mount Moriah, which would be the future site of the temple, the location where atoning sacrifices would be made over and over and over. It is pointing us towards Jesus and the, and the fulfillment of the rescue mission. This is a prelude as to why Jesus would come to earth. And this is the big deal about Advent. It's revealed in why Jesus was born on earth, entering our mess. Let's read in John chapter 1, verse 29. So just to set the scene, John the Baptist, he was the prophet that was there to prepare the way for the Lord in accordance with the Scriptures. And he sees Jesus, and he makes this, this statement. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Now, this phrase it doesn't mean much to you and I. Probably, you know, it wouldn't really grab us. But for his audience, the Jewish people, it would have immediately brought them back to the story of Abraham. It would have taken them back to the Passover, the sacrificial lamb that had protected them from judgment. They would have thought about the sacrificial rituals, the blood that was spilt for the forgiveness of sins again and again and again. And the people, the, Israel, the Israelite people, they had been waiting because all throughout the Old Testament, there was promises of a Savior. But they had different expectations. They were waiting for a political revolution to throw off the Romans. But they didn't realize their greatest need. Because Abraham called that mountain the place where the Lord would provide. Notice, this is future tense. That in sending Christ, his beloved son, God has provided for our deepest need, the need to be rescued from the sin that entangles us and separates us from our Creator who made us and loves us. The birth of Jesus would bring about the fulfillment of the greatest promise ever to be made, and this promise is for you and I. It's for us. Jesus is the Passover Lamb whose death and resurrection 
would mean our deliverance. And, and unlike Abraham, we get to savor what has already happened. Because for us, Advent, we're not waiting for the Savior. He has come. He has entered into our broken world, paid the debt that we could never pay, and freed us from the bondage of sin and death. This is the hope that anchors us each day. This is our living hope, as Peter so beautifully puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to the great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this morning, we get to savor in the already. We often use this phrase, the already and the not yet of the kingdom. And so this morning, we don't want to miss it. We get to savor the already. But again, I know there's still a not yet. We're still waiting in this room. We're dealing with the pain of waiting. We're waiting on God's promises. And I'm reminded of, in chapter 15, God comforts Abraham with this simple phrase, fear not, for I am with you. And we've been studying in Revelations. And hopefully this time has been strengthening you in your waiting. Because we know with certainty that the Lamb, Jesus Christ, will return to make all things new. And we can wait in that hope, knowing that God has already accomplished all that we'll ever need in Christ. Let's pray. God, you know what we need. Sometimes we, we have a list of other things that we come to you with. And God, you care about all of them. But you want to remind us that you have met us in our greatest need. That because of our sin, we're separated from you. But when you sent Jesus, you've brought us back close. When we trust in you, you have provided us with what we truly need. And we can savor in the already. But Lord, you also deeply care for our not yet. Lord, you are present with us in our suffering. Lord, let us be reminded that you are with us, that you are present, that you are never changing, but always with us, Lord. And give us, remind us of the freedom that we can come to you with our bold emotion, with our raw feelings, and that you love us and care for us, and you will see us through. Amen.